is the J Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. This is Andreas speaking. I am the creator and one of the head writers of Films Fatale. I love international and art house cinema. Who else do I have with me? James here, content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul, one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, writer for Films Fatale. And yeah. I'm Rachel, and I write for Films Fatale as well, and I have a column about lost films. In fact, a new one just went up today, the day that we're recording. So I decided that this should be this week's episode topic. A lost film is a movie where no copies exist. Maybe they all got destroyed, maybe they were neglected to the point where they're not playable, maybe they're just lost, and it's very, very common, especially for early films. Something like 90% of all films before 1929 are gone forever. We will not find them. Maybe an outlier here or there, but they are gone. And this is something that makes me very angry. It is my favorite topic. It is something I'm very passionate about, is that we have lost so much cultural heritage from a pretty recent art form, and yet we just threw it away like trash, and so much of it is gone. It is why I went into film preservation. It's why I started this column on Films Fatale, which I love writing, and it's just a huge part of my film interest. So because there are so many missing movies out there, I thought it would make a great episode topic. So in the first half, we're going to talk about the films that we have lost, what they might have meant, maybe who made them, that kind of thing. And in the second half, it'll be a movie that was rediscovered, because that does happen. It's always a happy moment. And we'll cover a few examples of those as well. I love this type of topic because I don't think a lot of people truly understand. Uh, once film was an innovation and then it became, you know, an entertainment form, but it was still not treated how it is now. It was more like the weekly newspaper. Like you would you would see something. Once it was old news, you hopped on to the next one. Like filmmakers were making like literally dozens of films a year, if not more. Like each filmmaker was making dozens themselves. And um, what's that horrifying statistic of films before 1929? How many of them are missing, roughly? Around 90%. Ooh, ouch. And there's so much innovation in those early years that it really is quite sad. You know, we talk about Georges Meillet and we love, you know, Metropolis, but we don't even know if there's, you know, so many other films of that caliber are even better because they're just, they, they're, they've vanished off the face of the planet. Exactly. I wrote about a film for Film Fatale a couple of weeks ago. It was from Estonia. And not only had it been lost until very recently, nobody had known it existed. So we don't know what's out there. Well, I can't wait to get into this uh, topic. Thank you so much for for, um, for promoting this one, Rachel. I know this is certainly your forte. Would you like to start? Sure, absolutely. So I went with a film by Michael Powell. For those of you who recognize that name, he was well-known in British and eventually international cinema, and he collaborated frequently with Emmerich Pressburger. They were Powell and Pressburger, and this team that was very good at making really beautiful, opulent films, particularly with color. Um, like, they, they really pioneered a lot of use of color. Uh, the Red Shoes, Tales of Hoffman, these are all examples of theirs. And... Um, on his own, he did Peeping Tom, which is possibly the first slasher movie and used innovative camera techniques on its own. So Powell is somebody I would really consider to be most famous in the realm of cinematography. Um, so his very first film, I believe it came out in 1930, and it was called Two Crowded Hours. It was a crime film. It was a comedy. Um, there wasn't really anybody in it that we would recognize, um, 
1931. Yeah, so it was his very first film, the start of a long and productive career. It was something about an escaped murderer. I didn't really pay much attention to the plot because it kind of looked like a silly pot boiler. But it is missing, presumed loss, and the British Film Institute contains a li- or it maintains a list that is one of the 75 most wanted. So these are the 75 movies that are important to British heritage. There's stuff on it like Todd Browning's London After Midnight, Alfred Hitchcock's The Mountain Eagle. So they consider this film to be pretty important, I think because it was part of Powell's career. It's also not his only lost film. There were at least a couple more that I could find. And it was an example of what was called a quota quickie. So in 1927, they passed the Cinematographic Films Act, which was meant to promote the British film industry because, as usual, Hollywood was taking everything over. So they had to show a particular quota of British or uh, British, what was then the British Empire's films. And the quota was, I think the statistics I found ranged from 7.5% to 20% of all Um, film shown in Britain. So there were tons of rules about the number of cast and crew that could be British, the funding, where did it come from, where was it filmed. And so predictably, everybody had to churn out X number of movies to meet their quota. So a lot of them were just god-awful. And the act remained in place in various forms until the 60s. And so quota quickies are really looked down on. I think that's why this film was lost. But some have argued that actually it contained parts of British culture that would never have made it to film otherwise, stuff like British theatrical traditions. And so there is some merit in preserving them. But not only is this the first film of Michael Powell's really fascinating career, it was an example of this particular era in British film history, which was kind of weird. I'm not going to lie. It's one of those things where I don't even know if it would be good, but I would love to see this. First off, The Archers. I consider them one director, but uh, they're on my list of top ten directors of all time. I adore their stuff. And even the stuff that Powell did uh, before he met Pressburger. So, you know, excluding Pee Peek Tom, which I also adore. I think it's a perfect uh, thriller film. You know, something like The Thief of Baghdad, which he co-directed. There is so much innovation there so i'd love to see in the same way that early ingmar bergman films aren't necessarily great but you could see already from the get-go he had a cinematic eye and was destined for greatness i'd love to see that you know if if michael powell had something similar especially with these uh you know 1930s works well if you look at early hitchcock he was constrained by the industry and he also was pretty much limited in what he could do but you could still see the innovation there you could see that he was a bit ahead of his time so maybe powell was kind of the same Absolutely. I mean, looking at Peeping Tom alone, the fact that he predated uh, New Hollywood to the extent that he was outright, you know, kicked out of of heaven and now is, you know, this film is championed. I mean, even Psycho was like not nearly as like maligned upon release for being too forward thinking. So you never know. Mm -hmm. Amazing. James, do you have any thoughts on uh, one Michael Powell? Well, the only film I've seen so far is Peeping Tom, but I'm definitely interested in seeing more of his stuff. But the fact that he has lost stuff just makes me more intrigued. I mean, when geniuses have something even the slightest bit like you might not be able to see this ever, I'm automatically interested. Yeah, and anybody whose career goes back far enough likely has a bunch of these. In fact, entire careers have been lost. Which is just devastating. Um, I guess to your point, James, it almost feels like we get these... Uh, you know, extra trinkets from the gift shop of our favorite auteurs when something like this happens, where it's like, yes, they've rediscovered this one minute scene that they worked on. Hey, it's something. And it's something extra to champion and to cherish. So, 
who knows? Maybe one day uh, we will find it. That would be uh, fantastic if we do. Uh, any any additional thoughts on this before we move on? Not for me. Okay. Well, uh, James, what about you? What's, what's your uh, lost film that you're eager to see hopefully one day? So when I was you know trying to figure out lost films, I actually stumbled upon this amazing website called lostmediawiki.com that has an entire library of all sorts of lost things and i found one that i'd never even heard about because it was never released and um i kind of picked it because um lost film is an interesting spectrum because it's not always just the discarded or something damaged it is also just stuff that was either abandoned or just kind of buried in people's careers and lost in the shuffle that just never came out apparently in the early 90s tim burton shot and was working on a documentary about his idol vincent price Oh, yeah? Hmm. Yeah, and it was actually uh, an interview with Price himself. It was shot over three days in 1990 in black and white, and uh, he financed it himself. And uh, uh, production halted when he started work on Batman Returns, and then it was pushed back even further uh, after Price's death in 93. And then he said he had returned to production at the end of 94, and then just ultimately nothing else was ever heard of the project and it was just shelved indefinitely no footage has been seen of it and it's just to this day not a single word uh, the theory is that uh people think that uh it was just a little too personal for him to release especially since you know the relationship he had formed with him had having worked with him and yeah it's just projects like this are amazing because it's like i wonder what kind of story he was trying to tell about his idol because I, I it's not some arbitrary filmmaker trying to make something about somebody that you know from way back when and trying to put the pieces together this is somebody he had an actual conversation with do you think the footage still exists like does burton have it somewhere and he just doesn't want to release it or is there any reason to believe it's not here anymore yeah i don't know that looking it up no one knows anything he's never said anything so if the if the footage exists it's probably somewhere secret probably requires like a number of passcodes to reach but yeah it's yeah it's just wild because it's i want to see it like the fact that he just did this independently Especially if somebody's legendary as Vincent Price, it's like, uh, you know, especially because this is like, you know, this is in his final years. So to see him talk about his life at that time would just be very, very eye opening. And considering the influence Price on, had on him and how they worked together and things like that, it's something. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like it's more of it's it, it, it was more so it's like a friend reaching out to a friend about this project and not anything business related. What I find really interesting and I'm, I'm very happy that somebody brought up a newer one. Um, it just goes to show how easy it is, even now, to lose something like this. And I don't think people realize how simple it actually is because we live in the internet age and we have access to pretty much whatever we want, whenever we want, but we also really don't. So, like, if you look at Questlove's documentary last uh, from last year, The Brilliant Summer of Soul, where all of that footage was basically in somebody's basement. You know, and you have something like this as well. This was recorded, this uh, interview you're talking about. That was only in, in the early 90s. That's just over 30 years old. And to the best of most people on Earth's knowledge, it just frankly doesn't exist anymore. It, it could be locked away. It, it could be disintegrated. We have no idea. And it's that easy. It's that easy to lose touch with something that once existed. 
And, you know, when I think of the age of the internet and how much we have put out there, including a lot of media, you know, we always tell people when they're growing up, oh, the internet is forever, don't put that picture of yourself doing a keg stand on Facebook. But really, the average bit of information online only survives about five to ten years, so we are going to lose a lot of knowledge that way, and there are efforts to preserve all this stuff, but I, I think about that now about more recent things. That's actually a very good point. I think um, MySpace actually, like, something happened where just a mass amount of data got deleted. Like, all this stuff was lost. You all mean my music. custom glitter banner? Oh, no. <laughs> not, not your glitter banner, no. Um, yeah, a whole, a whole heap of stuff. And whether it's websites just disintegrating or it's a whole heap of uh, rights-related issues, uh, rest in peace, my nearly 500 images on PhotoBucket, uh, if you don't know what that is, I'm probably um, like 10 years older than you, I guess. PhotoBucket. Uh, Wait, PhotoBucket's gone? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I don't even know what to call it anymore, but basically everything on it is gone. I think they made it so... You know, they they changed the format of the site so it functioned differently, kind of like a like a stock image, something or other. I I don't recall exactly what it was, but in return, they got rid of everything. As for the site itself, now I don't even know if it exists anymore. Okay. Yeah, but to your point, and I'm glad you brought it up. Even now, nothing is actually sacred. So, um, if you really care about something and it's online, for the love of God, save it, store it on a hard drive. Store it on two hard drives. Make sure that it's that it's protected in multiple places because and nothing is forever. Even if it's digital, even if it's online, nothing is forever. And I think that's the important takeaway of this episode. So I keep all the episodes of the podcast safely on my hard drive. Wonderful. <laughs> and so uh, anything more about the Burton Price adventure? I just want to see it. Me too. I guess this is like the one episode where we're not going to say, I'm going to have to check that out because guess what? You can't. can't. So Everybody check your basement. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, If you've moved in and somebody has renovated your house before you, you never know. Uh, the last missing piece of greed could be hiding in your floorboard and you don't even know it. A whole bunch of films were found in a, in a former swimming pool in Dawson City, Yukon, because it was the end of the line for all films in North America at the time. So they all kind of got piled up there. And, yeah, some real treasures found back then. At the bottom of the ocean, all sorts of places. Like, you just never know. I went with something similar to you, Rachel. I was thinking on the lines of a filmmaker that I personally loved who worked in the earlier days of cinema. And that's uh, Yasuzira Ozu, who's uh, most well-known for his his epic uh, opus, Tokyo Story. Um, and... He's made all sorts of other stuff as well, but um, this has been something on my mind for the longest time because on Films Fatale, I aim to rank all of the films by my favorite filmmakers, and I was uh, kind of anticipating watching a bunch by him because he was a very prolific filmmaker. Uh, Tokyo Stories is the most well-known one, but he's made at least like 15 noteworthy must-sees. And then you get to the part of his filmography where... I feel like it's like a like an entire fifth of his filmography is just flat out gone. It just doesn't really? exist anymore. That much. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Um, he's one of those guys who uh, was actually starting to remake his own stuff. So some of his silent stuff ended up becoming talkies, and you know the odd one was even in Technicolor. Um, but 
some of his earlier stuff again just does not exist anymore and i feel like another thing that a lot of that people might not realize if they don't dig deeply into early cinema a lot of people think that as soon as talkies started that was the case all across the world and that's not really so like if you look at um you know so talking pictures started on a mainstream level around 1927 and um if you look at some 30s films from like Japan or, or China, there were still a lot of films that, uh, like one of my personal favorites of the 30s, The Goddess, that were still silent. And um, Ozu, some of his his films that, that still exist from the 30s actually are silent. But the one that I wanted to highlight was one of his first talkies from 1936 it's called uh, college is a nice place which is a bit of a weird title but uh judging by ozu's standards uh you know you can only guarantee that something is going to be like really profound here because Please he's tell fantastic me it's an ozu frat boy comedy <laughs> no no i don't think so i don't think anybody's getting mad drunk or anything like that um no, uh, from what I can see from this one, uh, again, no copy of the film exists, but uh, the Tokyo Film Archive actually does have the screenplay intact. So, or it's not the official screenplay, I think it's like a draft. So should somebody want to recreate it or piece it together in that sort of a way, um, by all means. So this does, it's not a frat boy film, but it does involve the final year of college. But, you know, once you realize that it's about that and it's an Ozu film, you can kind of put two and two together and figure out what it means. Basically, adolescents discovering that life is going to be really hard ahead of them. So uh, I feel like this would have been really beautiful the way that he told it because he was always connective but never, never heavy-handed. And um, apparently there's this scene... That is just so Ozu. Um, they're starting to starve because they're in, out in the real world and they're actually struggling. So uh, one of the uh, one of the students entering the real world uh, actually pawns his suit, so they're able to have money. But now he can't look for work because um, because he can't look respectable and he can't. Uh, he, he can't look his best and, and promote himself. So there's a, a really interesting Catch-22 going on here. And again, it's so typical Ozu. He could say something so profound and so little. So I would, any of his lost films, but this particular one sounds like one that um, I'm really sad that we can't see. Not right now anyway. Oh, I hope it turns up. I hope all of these turn up. Thankfully, some did, though. That's true. And that's actually what we're going to get into the second half of the episode. So what is the second half again? So there are films that are found from time to time, often in archives or sometimes weird places like swimming pools and basements. And um, there's some pretty famous cases over history. Uh, I won't name any in case that's ones that one of you chose. But I have an interesting one, and it's actually a talkie from 1939. So it doesn't really fit your typical bill of a missing, um, missing film. But that is Tevia, which, if that sounds familiar, it's because it comes from the same source as Fiddler on the Roof, so the short stories of Shulam Aleichem. And so it's the story of this dairyman who lives in a small village in what is and was Ukraine, although at the time the czar was causing a fuss there. And um, 
or let me start that over, delete that bit. Although at the time, the Tsar had taken control over it. And so the stories are this warm, loving family composed with really difficult, painful history and terrible circumstances. So Tevye debates his personal problems, he jokes, he tells stories, he travels, and then there's all these horrible things going on in the background as well. What's interesting about this version of Tevye is that it was an example of American Yiddish language filmmaking, which sprung out from the very, very rich tradition of Yiddish theater, which pretty much existed wherever there was a large enough Yiddish-speaking population, South America, Europe. But it took hold in New York, and it became widespread all over the United States. And Yiddish as a language was the language of Eastern European Jewish people, uh, most European Jewish people, to be honest. And um, it's quite similar to German in vocabulary and structure, but it's written with Hebrew script. So um, it kind of declined, over, especially over the past century, with the loss of so many people in the Holocaust. But it's enjoying a revitalization today because many people are interested in exploring the, their roots, um, it's still spoken in many uh, communities, particularly religious communities, and it even has a course on Duolingo now, so if you're interested in learning Yiddish, go check that out. So Yiddish theater, it had tons of really interesting writing. There was lots of history, lots of social issues. There were also your usual crime stories, melodramas, pot boilers, family stories. And there was a lot of crossover between Yiddish theater and what would eventually become Broadway and then later Hollywood. There was kind of a boom in the early 20th century because there was so much immigration into the United States at the time. And it still has a tremendous effect on modern theater to this day. And starting from the 1910s, there started to be many Yiddish language movies. Uh, generally, it was a small number of movies and a very low budget, around $10,000, when the average film might have cost $200,000 to $300,000 at the time. But Tevia was a large-scale production. It had a budget of 70000 which was huge for the period. It was based off the stories by Sholem Aleichem. Not, it doesn't really have any connection. Like, It and Fiddler on the Roof are two separate things for anybody listening at home. Um, there are some plot points changed and condensed from what you might recognize. And the ending is... I don't want to spoil it, but it's very decisive, and it's believed it was written in a way that was a sort of thumbing your nose at the anti-Semitism at the time, both abroad and in the United States. And uh, World War II actually broke out during filming. So I can't imagine what it must have been like to film it and to know, you know, many people would have been born in Poland that had been invaded that week. There were many people who had relatives in Europe who were now under threat. I just can't imagine going through it. I watched the movie... It disappeared. I don't know exactly when it disappeared, but it was released in 1939, I think did fairly well, and then it was suddenly gone. And it was revived in the 1970s. Somebody found it. I cannot find any circumstances about either its loss or its rediscovery. But it has been restored, and it's on YouTube. It's very moving. But you've got all these lovely moments with Tevi and his family, and just this detailed history of this village. And it's... Uh, it's really touching. I was surprised at how close I came to tears at the end. And there have been some Yiddish films since. Um, Hester Street was probably the most notable one in the United States. There have been a few made here and there. But uh, 
Tavia, I think, may be the one with the largest legacy, and it was the first non-English language movie added to the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. I think that was in 1991. I would definitely recommend going to YouTube and watching this movie. It's got subtitles, um, and it's just a really, really good experience that I think has very rich storytelling, great performances, and the writing's so dense, I really enjoyed it. Wow. Well, that sounds like a miraculous journey for that to wind its way up onto YouTube for, for us to appreciate, uh, you know, like entire lifetimes after it was created. Wow. Yeah. And the, the actor-director, Maurice Schwartz, plays, uh, plays the lead so well, and he was an absolute giant of theater and cinema, and so I wanted to shout him out, too. Yeah, that, that sounds incredible. James, what about you? In my research, I stumbled upon a 1960 film titled Private Property. And it is an independent crime film directed by Leslie Stevens, who was the creator of the show The Outer Limits. Mm. And it boils out, the, the, the plot's very basic. It's about a, a couple common crooks. They end up you know, squatting this abandoned house that's next door to this lonely housewife. And then uh, one of the pair... Is going is attempts to is going to attempt to kind of like manipulate and seduce her for his friend, and the thing about this movie was because of the nature of things like sexuality and voyeurism, it was very like edgy for the time, and it actually was um, it actually was rated C or condemned by the Catholic Legion of Decency. It also failed to get a motion picture production code seal, so they couldn't get major distribution. And yeah, it was. Uh, I primarily picked it because it was a really low budget film. You know, it says it was shot in ten days with a you know, you know, small budget. Actually, I, I think it was at Steven's house they shot it. And I watched the trailer for it because so, I still haven't seen it, and it's very much. It's kind of got like a new way feel, and the way it's shot. It, I can see why it kind of caused a fuss in the at the uh, back in the day because it does have that kind of like feeling of something that's like a lot more in, inappropriate than would be now. But yeah, it's just like just judging from the trailer, so you could tell it's just like one of those thrillers. It's just like it's very tense the entire time. And you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there's also um, <laughs> a, a great story of. Um, an interview with uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. Apparently, the Kennedys watched this film the night that Kennedy won the West Virginia Democratic primary. Uh-huh. And uh, they were not about it. They didn't really care for it. Perhaps that's why it's lost. <laughs> it's uh, she, she basically compared it to pornography, but it just like, obviously, it wasn't like hardcore or anything like remotely what is considered now. But yeah, they really were not about it. But um, yeah, it was... You know, it didn't really get much distribution. It made a couple million dollars at the box office, I think mostly in Europe. And it was thought to be lost for years. And then, you know, like, like all great, you know, rediscoveries, it, you know, a print was found and restored. It was by the UCLA Film and Television Archive. And then it was released in 2016, I believe, in theaters. Yeah. It was at the 200 Classic Movies uh, Classic Film Festival in 2016, had its television premiere in 2017, and then I got a Blu-ray release. What a journey. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, 
And that's what I, the thing, the, the interesting thing about the sixties is, uh, because you're still in the code era. So it's like, there are things that want to, you could tell there are people who are trying to push boundaries, but just could only, they go under the radar and it's only until years later, which is really interesting how, you know, something has a certain impact on release. And then, you know, when you look back, it's, you know, acclaimed, it's like how uh, Stanley Kubrick, like all those movies that were derided by critics that are now viewed as masterpieces. Right, mm-hmm. right. So yeah, that was my pick. And I'm pretty excited to watch it because this is like, independent film's my thing, but like, especially like early years of independent film is just really even more interesting because it's like, you know, there's kind of this like, they're breaking the rules intentionally and they're aware, but they just want to push boundaries because it's for the sake of the art. Well, when you do watch it, please let us know how it is, okay? Alrighty, so on my end, um, I don't even know where to start with this one. Uh, I'll cut right to the chase. It's uh, the silent epic Napoleon by Abel Gantz, which is one of the most bizarre, interesting stories in, I guess, all of cinema. Like, I don't even know where to begin with this. So uh, right off the bat, this was... Uh, many-year project for Gantz, who was uh, obsessing over the uh, the technology of filmmaking more than anything, but I don't think he really wanted to lose the story because he was writing and rewriting and rewriting an entire six-part opus of Napoleon Bonaparte and his entire life from when he was a child until, until his deathbed. And uh, th- again, this was a labor of love for a very long time. And to give a little bit of insight... Um, this film, which uh, you can actually watch, uh, not many uh, preferred ways, and I'll get into that in a second, but you can watch it. Um, you'll notice if you compare it to other silent films, uh, most films of the, of that same era were were shot with static images. They didn't really pan around or move. But then you look at something like Napoleon, which is just, you know... Is, so much panning, so much movement with the camera, and that alone is like a big reason why to watch it. Otherwise, this uh, this five plus hour opus, uh, you can definitely watch it, but there was a very good chance that you couldn't have, and here's why. So when it first came out, um, it, again, th- here comes the year 1927. So. Uh, while Gantz was focusing on that type of technology, you know, the movement, the storytelling, people were kind of moving on to something else, the idea of the talkie. And I feel like, and this isn't something that I've read, but I can only ascertain that by now, yeah, there were many long silent films before this. Uh, you know, I've seen one that was like seven hours. Agreed was supposed to be, I don't even know, an ungodly amount of hours. Nine hours around there. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I think only like five exist now. Um, but when it comes to this, here comes a film during the, the start of the talkie era. That's six hours, I think the original was, uh, for Napoleon. And now talkies, you could only have a certain amount of sound. And that's why so many talkies were really short, like around an hour long. And I feel like that just felt so much more enticing to people than this massive sweeping epic. So first off, it wasn't getting quite the reception that it deserved. Then it wasn't getting distributed, I guess because everybody was moving on. And when it was getting distributed, it was getting recut into some Frankenstein-like, you know, 
abomination and people were hating what they were seeing and they were like, okay, this isn't very good. So, you know, poor Abel Gantz here um, tried again and again and again. He started using portions of these films in some of his other films, trying to get it to, to pick up in, in whatever way possible. And eventually in the 50s, I believe he just actually destroyed the negatives of the original. So, um, yeah, there's a very, very good, you know, there was like this, uh, this movement that would eventually follow, um, and a lot of that has to do with the reinstilled interest in the film and uh, the, the hard work of one historian, Kevin Brownlow, who actually owned two reels of, of the film. I believe it was two reels and did a lot of the preservation work himself to try and bring this back to life. And what ended up um, what ended up happening is not only was this reinstilled interest in the film a major component of what we now know as the French New Wave in the late 50s. Um, but when this was ultimately shown again, um, as intended, and this is what I was referring to earlier, this film wasn't just projected normally, and this is a big reason why it wasn't catching on or being distributed in many places. There are sequences that involve, like, I think it's like, five different screens at once to give you like this massive like IMAX level crazy stuff going on yeah so um I they did as be best as they could and even still when they showed it at the uh the 79 Telluride this was like this was a miraculous achievement and they've done subsequent showing since now I have seen it I haven't seen it as intended with the crazy screens going on, with an accompanied orchestra. I've seen it archived digitally online, so when it comes to the multi-screen parts, they kind of crush the aspect ratio so you could see them all on one screen. But the, the color tinting is there, the beautiful cinematography is there, all five and a half so hours are there, except for the parts that didn't make it um, from the original negative. But this is as close as we're going to get, I think, and that's Napoleon, one of the most ambitious projects in all of cinematic history. Well, I'm glad they've found it. Yeah, again, shout-outs to um, the one and only uh, Kevin Brownlow, who uh, has done so much work when it comes to preserving, uh, when it comes to preserving, uh, you know, reconstructing, fixing, reviving all of these forgotten and or lost films. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's really a passion project of his own. And uh, to take on something like reviving freaking Napoleon, um, I mean, it's monumental. I mean, what more can you say? What interests me about this episode is what a cross-section of film and general history we've gotten out of this. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of sad, though, because it, it feels like the preservation community is a lot smaller than it should be. It's very small, and a lot of it is kind of, there are only so many archives and so much money to go around. But also... Finding a lost film is very rare. I need to say, all the movies we talked about in the first half are probably gone. We are probably never going to see them again, so... Yeah. Um, there are people working tirelessly all over the world, and they do find lost films, and they do restore what we already have, but there's only so much they can do when we've sent the rest of the films away. 
Yeah, it's not so much that a lot of these films were like looked for. Like, I'm going to search for this film that I read about somewhere. It, typically, a film is found and then you get like an archivist or a preservationist to try and discern what they have found using um, all sorts of uh, tricks of the trade. And then they can ultimately decide, okay, we have finally found... And I'm trying to wish this into existence. Um, we have finally found the entire, uh, the entirety of greed. So this is amazing. It was in a janitor's closet this whole time. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, or they, they get a pile of films from somebody's estate and they say, hey, this film can't isn't what was labeled. That's true. It, uh, you know, in the same way that we might use the wrong DVD boxes uh, for certain discs, uh, you know, blame young teenage me. Uh, people might have done that back then with actual reels, putting them in the wrong containers. And that actually has happened. I think that happened with Metropolis, didn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, the Chicago Film Archives, I think the film was the first degree. And I, I think it might have been found that way. Like it was just uh, the archivists going about their day to day work. And yeah. It's just incredible stuff. And I feel like when we get to our random recommendations, we're probably going to discuss a few more interesting examples. But before we do that, we're going to have to discuss some other films and some other uh, some other housekeeping protocols. That's right. So we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. And this month for Cinematic Smorgasbord, our individual picks are Opera, Trances, and Puritang. And then our collective is O Pagador de Promesas, or The Given Word. Fantastic. So, uh, who wants to go first with a random recommendation? Okay. So this is another rediscovered film. Uh, at least part of it was rediscovered, and that was Limite. And it is a Brazilian experimental film by a writer who uh, made this one movie and then stopped making movies forever. And, like, he... Uh, quality over quantity, folks. This movie's unbelievable. It's it's truly a sensory experience. I wrote about it for Films Fatale, and it ranks very high on my list of films that I've done. It's just unforgettable, and you should go to Criterion and go watch it right now. Yep, I can't second that notion enough. I think it's just an exquisite film of, of its kind, especially when it comes to like experimental art house filmmaking. James, what about you? So I guess keeping in theme with the episode, um, and I haven't watched this yet, I just stumbled upon the fact that this is available on YouTube somehow, but uh, there is the 36-minute cut of what is Quentin Tarantino's actual first film, My Best Friend's Birthday, which apparently there used to be a 70-minute cut, and uh, there was a legend that uh, a uh, lab fire destroyed most of the footage, but apparently uh, a book was written about it, and uh, everybody revealed, like, no, that wasn't true. He just kind of went with it because it sounded interesting, and it's just something he just wasn't satisfied, cut together a short with the th- stuff he thought was best, and just has it just sitting. He- he's-, he's screened it places, but, you know, he-, he said he might revisit it and kind of put together a full cut of it one day, but... The Wonders of the Internet. It is available on YouTube, so I will definitely be watching it. And if you're a Tarantino fan, recommend it because it's like, you know, see what it was like before Reservoir Dogs. Amazing. Well, mine's not exactly a film that was lost, although parts of it were lost. And I feel like it's a good way to wrap up an episode like this because it kind of gives you insight into why this stuff happens. I'm going with On the Silver Globe by Andre Zulowski, who's... um, you know, this project was uh, ultimately shelved for tons of, uh, sens- you know, censoring and uh, other budgetary issues. Um, and while they were just held on, on site, um, it 
you know, it took, I think it was, it was a number of years, uh, like over 10 years, I think, for the film to finally be shown, um, albeit without all of its parts. Uh, some of it just has, uh, you know, speaking over, uh, some of it has a narration over, over the scenes to detail like what's going on, even though, you know, yeah, the scenes are missing, so it's not quite the same thing. But it's as good as we're gonna get. Regardless, it's a it's a stunning, ambitious, crazy film. But yeah, it just goes to show that even like a film that was being made in the seventies, um, because of a lot of back and forth and stymieing, could have been completely destroyed. But at least we have a vast majority of it. So I'm going with on the Silver Globe. Nonetheless, that was the K-Cut. Thank you so much for listening. And now we are going into the L-Cut. L-Cut.